0: So today, super excited. We have a really amazing founder. You know, he's done it all, uh, and uh, now he's on his second uh, journey. But before we get started, you know, just a little mention here that on Tuesday this week, my next book, Selling Your Startup, actually launched. It was released. There's over 20 founders in there that have recommended it. That have sold their companies for over 500 million, and even many of them for over a billion. And the main reason for this is because I didn't see any type of guidance when it came for positioning and packaging your company for an exit. So whether you are getting started or you're thinking for what that exit is going to look like, I think it's never too early to really understanding what the end goal is going to be. So again, this is the roadmap for knowing how that process of getting your company acquired looks like and how to make it happen. So I guess uh, with that being said, Basically the guest today, I think that his last company is unbelievable. I mean, they've raised close to four hundred million. The last raise, you know, one of them actually that they did last year was literally in the middle of COVID. And I think that we're gonna be learning a lot on how the company has matured from financing cycle to financing cycle and how things have actually happened. He was also a very early employee at Google as well. But without further ado, I don't wanna make anyone wait any longer. So I wanna welcome our guest today. Ashutosh Garg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Super excited to be here. So originally you were born in India. So how was life growing up there? Because
1: I believe it was a small town. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, I grew up in a small town in the foothills of Himalayas with close to nature, mountains, rivers. So at some level, a fantastic life. What we miss these days. I hear you. I mean, that sounds like... uh...
0: Super peaceful compared to now probably the craziness that, that you see in urban life. Exactly. Unbelievable. So I guess, I guess in this case, you obviously moved quite a bit and, and everything was really uh, uh, triggered by studies and you got into electrical engineering. So why, why electrical engineering out of everything?
1: I grew up in a small town, Haldwani in India, and very quickly realized that education is what's going to make or break our life. And the most important thing. And as some of you might know, in India, there's these set of colleges, IITs, which have a very stiff competition. So I prepared, gave the exam, got a certain rank. And to be honest, didn't know much at that time. What I knew is that computer science is the best branch. But my rank was not high enough that would get me into computer science. After that, the next thing was electrical engineering. So you just showed up for counseling. You made a rank list. This IIT followed in this branch, followed by this IIT in this branch, and my fifth choice was IIT Delhi in electrical engineering, and that is what I got. Then learned what electrical engineering means. Got excited about it. Continued.
0: Uh, so then so then so then how do you fall into into AI and machine learning? Because obviously you know here you are getting some sort of engineering uh, in your CV but then all of a sudden here you are you know going after AI and machine learning by you know luck and uh, and this also landed you in the US I mean
1: quite a quite a journey all the way from the Himalayas it is uh, I like to call myself a creation of luck and chances more than anything else during my undergraduate education I did my thesis on machine learning application in office environments. After that, I worked in India for a year in the VLSI CAD space, EDA. Uh, I was employed by Synopsys. I applied for higher education, master's program, and PhD program in the U.S. And I got admission at UIUC with a research assistantship that would allow me to pursue machine learning, computer vision, and, and other colleges in VLSI, EDA. Believe it or not, in those days, machine learning was not considered to be hot area. Electronic design automation, VLSI, was considered to be very, very hot.
0: And what year was that? What year was that?
1: 1998.
0: So then what what what, what drew your attention to, to that space since it was not hot at
1: all? UIUC was the best college, which was giving me a scholarship to come. The others were good colleges, not that good. So I was extremely disappointed. I showed up at UIUC with almost a commitment to myself that as soon as I show up at UIUC, I will switch into EDA. And I showed up at UIUC. The very first thing I did within the first month of I being there is started talking to professors who were doing research in VLSI, electronic design automation. And as my advisor who was paying for my ownership learned that I'm planning to switch. And he was like a fatherly figure, 60-year-old. Very, very nice guy. He was like, Ashu, just get your heads down, do the work, what I'm telling you to do. Don't worry about things. And you know, I was a young kid from India, didn't know much. So it's was like, okay, sounds good. I made a mistake. I'll just continue this computer vision, machine learning. I have no idea what this is. And frankly, the rest is history. I mean, look, look at you. I mean, you you you
0: literally were... Getting started when when nothing you know was really starting. I mean, now everyone is talking about AI and AI here and AI there, but uh, but back then it was it was not that big of a deal. And in your case, after a PhD, you joined IBM, but you were there just for a short period of time, which ended up landing you in Google and with a very interesting interview process back then. I mean, this was the early days of Google. We're talking about 2004, still 1,700 employees. But what was that? What was that process like? Of
1: of getting in into a rocket ship like that? So Google, even in those days, was known for the interview process and everything was about programming, coding. And here I was doing research at IBM and mainly a theoretician with very minimal experience on coding, building things. So I showed up for my interview and I had told Google that I'm not really a coder, I'm a researcher. So please focus my interview on research, not on coding. But nevertheless, I showed up for an interview. My very first interview was with this individual, Andy Golding. And his very first question was, he, he came in, wrote some code on the whiteboard, saying that, Ashu, can you fix this code? And as I looked at it, I'm like, okay, I'm done. This is not my cup of tea. I don't know how to, to code. So if I start even attempting this thing, it won't go anywhere. But on the other hand, as my luck would have it, when he introduced himself that I am Andy Golding, I remember not only who he is, I had even read many of his research publications before he joined Google, Now, which is a mere chance, right? So I was like, Andy, I don't, I don't think I can answer this question for you. But you know what? I know your research. I have read your papers. So if you want, you can even ask me about your own papers, and I'm happy to walk you through your own papers. And he can do that stuff or ask me anything about research and I will do that. And trust me, if I can do that, I can answer your research, I can answer other research questions. I will learn coding as well if that is what's needed to do the job. Which is quite, a, which was quite a challenge to him also. And he did ask me and interview went well. I got the job and I was able to ship production code in the first three months of joining. So quickly mastered the programming languages that were needed. With it was C++ or Java.
0: And you were there for like four years in Google.
1: I was there for four years. And other thing that was very interesting about my job at Google in those days was there was a very small research team. When I joined, we were roughly 15 people in the research. And I showed up in my office and looked around. None of them was from the research team. And I asked my recruiter or onboarding person okay who's my manager and when am I when am I going to talk to my manager and effectively the answer was that your manager is Alan Eustace who runs the whole engineering and he won't have time to meet you for another two months <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so what should I do I asked my office mates and they're like we don't know just do f- something figure out what you need to do So it was literally, you have a computer, go do something.
0: That's amazing.
1: And I started working on this problem on some shopping related. And this is something about Google culture that I admire to this day. So I built a prototype of how should you go shopping in malls. I showed it to my office mates. They were like, this is really cool. You should go and show it to Larry and Sergey." And I was like, I'm just a new newbie. I don't know. I can't do this. It's not ready. And within a few hours, there was an email in my inbox from Larry saying that I heard you have built a very interesting prototype. Do you want to come and show it to us? And that kind of gave me the confidence that I can build things. I can make things happen. And if I do it correctly, I will get the right visibility. And then continued on the journey of leading the personalization efforts at Google. Google ranking algorithms, product search, and so on.
0: So then what was your your biggest lesson from those four years? Because, I mean, those were four years of crazy growth as well for Google. And, uh, and I'm sure that you being part of that atmosphere, environment, and, and culture, you know, perhaps, you know, there was perhaps one takeaway that you knew that you were going to always take with you.
1: How was that? I would say there are a few things during those four years. I got a chance to work with some of the smartest people I know till this late. I got to work with some of the hardest working people that I know till this late. Other thing that I saw in the management at Google was whether people were managing a 5% team or a 1,000% team. Everyone was into details. Everyone was hands-on. Knew their stuff in and out. And that sets a very different culture and delivery model because it's no longer about politics. It's about substance. And that has been super helpful as I have gone about building my own team. Because until and unless as a leader, you understand the details. I mean, your judgment will be biased, which it will be based on hearsay, which is not going to lead to a good outcome. Yeah, I think that has been a big lesson for me. The second big lesson has been, because when I first showed up at Google, I didn't know how to build things and spent time learning and building things and was able to do it. It gave me the confidence that I can build things. I can make it happen. So never take no for an answer. Just keep working, keep pounding, and you will get there.
0: I love that. So then in your case, I mean, eventually you made the decision that it was time to, um, to turn page and move on to the next chapter. And that was starting your first company where you were more on the technical side. But I've also heard that uh, you're quite a risk-averse person. So how can a risk-averse person jump into the bandwagon of entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, actually, I got my Hogan profile done. My coach told me that, Ashu, you're a very risk-averse person. So what are you doing with entrepreneurship that's not your cup of tea? And I don't think those binary views are the right way to approach life or people. And in fact, part of the thesis of Eightfold is it's not about who people are, but what all they can do. So yes, I'm a very risk-averse person at the heart. And what I have done is always try to minimize risk while trying to take big leaps. So a few examples, right? At some level, you can say that my life has been pretty straight line, right? You go to IIT Delhi, you do your engineering over there, you come to US, you do your master's, you do your PhD, right? So whether you take my education, what I try to do was minimize the worst case scenario for me, have the very best education I can get so that the downside is minimized. Or joining Google in those days at some level, while it came across as risky, it was not that risky in the grand scheme of things. But then work extra hard to minimize the risk. But especially as I have built about eightfold, many times I talk to entrepreneurs, especially the second-time entrepreneurs or third-time entrepreneurs. And the one of the top things in their mind is about dilution. I'm going to raise money, which will mean that I will get diluted. So, how should I optimize the financing? In my case, Being both a tech founder and being a risk-averse person, what I want to do is I want to minimize the risk in the company. And if I don't have to take the financing risk, why should I take that one? So part of the reason we have raised all the financing we have is because this completely minimizes the financing risk for the company. We have capital to grow. So we didn't raise the money because we needed to. We are very cash efficient, but it was to minimize that risk. And that has helped us grow a lot.
0: And obviously, you know, you guys have been growing like crazy on Eightfolds. But but before Eightfolds, I mean, it was a Bloomreach. And with
1: Bloomreach, um, what what did you guys exactly do at Bloomreach? So at Bloomreach, we were building an e-commerce personalization platform. The idea was that when you go to any of the top retailers in the country, how can we provide you the right search recommendation? framework so that whether you are searching for a dress or a computer printer or ink or paper or anything else, you get the right products that you are likely to buy. So that was the primary focus area over there. How do we make e-commerce more relevant to everyone? And how much money did you guys raise
0: there? Till the time I was there, we raised roughly $100 million. Okay. And you obviously scale this company up to three hundred employees and then you decide to step away. I mean, you stepped away for the creation of Eightfolds, but I'm sure that leaving behind, you know, such a massive business, you know, especially uh, having been there for 12 years, I'm sure it was not very easy for
1: you. It's never easy to leave things behind. But you know, we don't make progress in life if we keep holding on to things which are there with us. Yeah. Unless you let go of things you can't make progress. Well oh, that's what I believe in. So, what was that moment where you knew it was time to to turn page? For me, it was more driven by what's next. What I tell people is, we are in Bay Area or where I am. I have good education, good health, good financial standing, good network, good experiences. We owe it to ourselves to do something good for society. So, actually. When I started thinking about what's next, the default mode would have been for me to start something in a digital marketing space, which was my area at Bloom or in the personalization space from Google. But I actually started by thinking about education. If we can provide kids the right education, things will be much better.
0: And how was that process? How was that process like of incubating? it falls then and and coming up with the idea and then you're saying hey we're going we're going to go
1: after this and but then i very quickly realized education is not for me too hard so i started thinking about healthcare and left bloomies to start a company in the healthcare space now today what happens is that the primary buyer of healthcare solutions is the hr benefits department of large enterprises because most large enterprises are self-insured. So I started going from one HR department to another HR department to discuss my healthcare idea. And what constantly came back to me was healthcare is interesting, but our bigger problem is talent. We don't have people. We need the right people. We don't have the right skill set in our company. That is when it dawned on me that actually, If I really work on solving for employment, getting people the right job, I will have a fundamental positive impact on society, and that is what led to start of Eightfold. That's amazing. So then, with
0: Eightfold, let's talk about, you know, getting the team together because you you've talked about working with the smartest and hardest working people at Google. I'm sure that that gave you an idea of the type of profiles of people that you wanted to surround yourself with. So. And this, this being your second startup too, and you know probably with Bloomreach you were exposed to really hiring and and getting you know those three hundred really solid individuals. So now with Eightfold, how did you go about really arming yourself and surrounding yourself by the right individuals? What what were the early days and that process of of assembling the the
1: A plus team like? So actually the journey goes a little bit back when I interviewed at IBM Research in two thousand. I asked my hiring manager what are you looking for when you are hiring someone and his response was Ashu I am looking for people who are better than me and that almost sounds like a cliche sounds good moved on then I saw all these phenomenally smart people at Google who could do anything and so when I started Bloom Beach, my primary thing was that, let me just go find smart people and they will learn, grow on the job and make things happen. And one thing that I realized as we were doing this is that quite a few times we were learning on the job. None of us knew how to do these many of these things, which made it very, very hard for us.
0: And, you know, there's going to be probably, you're actually a lot of um, people that are listening that they haven't been... They haven't been lucky enough to, to work in an environment like Google or, or to, you know, now they're like kind of like taking that leap of faith, starting their own company. What does it look like when you come across someone that is smart or smarter than you or, or that can do things better than you? How does that look like? How do you come across these people
1: and identify? Them? Uh, I think there are two, three things, right? One is at Itford, what we did differently this time was that combine the people with a lot of experience with the people who are new but upcoming. So we bring both wisdom and intellect together. That's one part. The second thing is, when we say looking for people are smarter than you, that sounds like a very generic statement. But the idea is that anyone who is coming in, can they do that piece of job better than you can do that piece of job? So really try to dig into that stuff. Third is try to understand based on their past experiences, how well they might have done in their career. And how will that reflect they performing well in your own organization? But fourth, hiring is not easy. It takes work. As a CEO, 60% of my time goes in hiring people, looking for people all the time. And when you come across good people, you don't give up. You pursue them like crazy. I remember hiring our President Kamal, I met him, I think, in July of 2017. We met four or five times. I was excited to bring him on board, made him an offer. He declined in August, saying that I'm not interested. In a normal case, my approach would have been, or someone's approach would be that, okay, sounds good, he's not interested, move on, right? From August till January of next year, I met him pretty much every weekend. Every weekend. Wow. And in February, he resigned his job, joined us.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. But I mean, what, what the hell were you telling him every weekend? I mean, what, what, what was it just like to get together for to talk about something
1: else or to like bring up the speed on the progress? I mean, what, how, how did you approach that? I think it, at some level, interview always continues. Okay. But every time you're learning, asking questions, trying to get help, so as I was building the business, he is a business person. I'm not a business person. So for me, it was always about discussing how should I think about partners, how should I think about go-to-market, sales, brainstorming, those things, right? Yeah. And that got his excitement up. We realized that we can work well together. There's a good chemistry between us. Nice. So then so then, let's talk about the business now. Uh, what,
0: what, why don't, Especially for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Eightfold that
1: uh, we know today? So today, our business model is it's a SaaS offering where we sell a software, price it in a SaaS model. The pricing is a platform-based and the platform is priced based on the size of the enterprise. So for le- primarily selling into Fortune 500 companies across the globe. So if you're a 10,000 employee company, we will price it based on the number of employees that you have, roughly 10,000 or a tiered model. In addition to that, we have a number of modules on top of our platform that enterprises can buy. And each of these modules are priced separately.
0: Nice. So then so then also for this company, I mean you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much money have you raised for this?
1: Uh I think closer to four hundred million dollars, slightly more. That's incredible. How has it been the
0: the journey of of raising money from one financing cycle to another financing cycle? And more specifically, how has it been raising or planning to raise in the middle of COVID?
1: Tell me about it. Tell me about it. COVID. (laughs) To be honest, it has been quite a journey. A lot of ups and downs. But last one year has been indeed a crazy year for us. Our plan last year was to raise money in the middle of the year. So around June, July timeframe. But then late February, early March of last year, as COVID started spreading, It was, on that day, it felt like the world is going to fall apart. Everything was shutting down. And here was Eightfold, a company in the talent acquisition space, largely speaking, on that day. If companies are not hiring, what is the future of Eightfold? Probably nothing. So, as I thought about it, I, I being a risk-averse person, said, okay, what do I do? I have two options. Either to let number of people go and let this storm settle and then go raise money in towards the end of the year. But then with this uncertainty, if you want to solve for employment, it does not make any sense to let people go. That's the worst time to let someone go. So what I did instead was went to my investors, existing investors, convinced them to write me a convertible note so that I can weather this storm and see what I need to do. So March was a crazy month. We, We raised money on a convertible note in March of last year. And as soon as that happened, we got an opportunity to build a talent exchange. The idea was that as companies were laying off people, can we take those people and connect them to the enterprises that are hiring people at that time? That was a phenomenal success. But while that we were doing it, we used to have a talent management offering as well, which we started getting very good traction. So both our investors and investors outside realized that actually 8 is executing phenomenally well, even during pandemic. That has accelerated our financing and we ended up raising a large round which convert with the convertible note resulted in a $130 million raise in September, October of last year. Wow, that's incredible. Now, that company was well capitalized. Our talent exchange did extremely well. We did a lot of these in public sector as well. So business kept thriving. Well, here comes February. One, one thing that is
0: it's amazing here uh, that I'm seeing is that the, the risk-averse type of profile has served you very well because I think that as entrepreneurs, our biggest uh, responsibility is to the risk as much as possible the execution. And I think that, that uh, perhaps that paranoia of, of, of risk and the risk, I think that that has definitely you know, uh, played a, a good part and I'm sure a, a critical ingredient of the success of Eightfold. And I guess in your guys' case, when as you've been raising money, and going from round to round. I mean, now, as you were saying, around $400 What What would you say has been that process? Because a lot of entrepreneurs, they think, oh, you know, this investor tells us no. And then, you know, they're giving up on that investor, and then they go on to the next. But I think that that's wrong, because when an investor that has an investment thesis that applies to your specific business, when they tell you no, it's just because there is concerns that have not been addressed. So I guess in your case, How did you go from turning non-believers into believers that would actually end up becoming
1: investors in it I think there are two parts to it. One is investment really happens on on a single day. It takes a while. My first round came from Lightspeed, who was also an investor in my previous company. My second round came from Foundation Capital. We are their partner who led the round also wrote a personal check in series A. But more importantly, we have known each other for 10 plus years. And we almost started a company together in 2008. My third round came from IVP, which also tried to participate in a major round at Bloomreach in 2012. And my... Fourth round came from General Catalyst, where they were engaged with us in conversation in our CDC as well. And final round came from South Bank, or the latest round, where Deep Nishal, and I have known each other now for 10 plus years, but more importantly, we almost conceived the idea of Eightfold on his kitchen table in 2016. Wow. Uh, I think that's one part. The second part... so. What people do is that the first time they meet you, they may not be excited about you, but over time, as they see the progress, they get excited. The second thing I've seen a lot is, as founders, entrepreneurs, we try to maximize our valuation and chase the investor who is ready to write the biggest check. Actually, in almost four out of five rounds in the company, We didn't even shop around. We talked to one investor who we had a relationship with. They gave us a term sheet. We negotiated with them and we signed with them. And not because we could not shop around, not because there was not enough market interest, but more importantly, because it's better to go with someone who really believes in you. Because it is their own belief that will help you through good and bad times. Yeah, They will stay with you, right? Versus you go from one shop to another to another, whoever gives you the best price, you take it from them. Then they are giving you the money because of fear of missing out, not because they genuinely believe in you. And then when things fall apart, I mean, on a bad day, it gets very, very crazy. But I think that that also shows integrity on your
0: end. And, you know, as we all know, companies go up and down. And what you want to make sure is that when you're on the down you know, part, that investor is going to chip in and they're going to have your back and send that positive signaling to the market, to other investors on that next financing cycle. So I think that that's a very good way to forge that, uh, that relationship early
1: on. And I think the key thing is that are you trying to build a company for next two years, four years to sell, or are you trying to build a company to last for the long term? And if you're trying to build a company to last for the long term, you can't be over-optimizing in the short term.
0: So then so then in your case, and that's fantastic advice. In your case, I mean, now, you know, when we're talking about people, how big is Eightfold today? I mean, anything that you can share on employees or anything else?
1: Yeah, we are roughly 300 people as of today. That's and fantastic. this year we are growing from roughly 200 to 500 people.
0: That's fantastic. Wow, wow, What a growth. What a growth. So I guess in your case, imagine you go to sleep tonight. And you go to sleep and you wake up in a world five years later. I mean, you've never slept like this in your life. And um, you wake up in a world where the vision of Eightfold is completely realized. What does that world look
1: like? The world of talent is changing extremely fast. Whatever we know today will be at least half as valuable in five years from now. So the way we think seek employment is, has already changed over the last 10 years and changing even faster. COVID happened, remote work has become the norm, right? So next five years are going to see massive, massive changes. I want to live in a world where we get the job based on what we can do, not based on who we know. I want to live in a world where you get the job irrespective of your race, gender, age, ethnicity. You get paid based on the hours you are ready to work, not limited by the location where you live. You are constantly learning on the job. You may not even be tied to a single employer at a time. You may be having five different jobs at the same time. That's the world I want to live in. And my, my vision is that I'm going to enable that world over the next five years. That's amazing.
0: Well, let me tell you that that world is looking already amazing in my eyes. So, obviously, you're rooting you know, for that to happen. And, and let's say I put you into a time machine, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time with all the apps, all the downs, everything that you've learned you know, from this experience of building and scaling two companies. And I bring you back to that time where perhaps you were still at Google, and you were thinking about like maybe starting something of your own, Imagine you had the opportunity of sitting down, you know, with that younger self, and you were able to give that younger self one piece of business advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, based on what you know now?
1: Spend more time with customers. Spend time selling. Learn sales. Another big one is believe in yourself. Just be confident about what you are, what you can do. And actually, there's another one, I would say, which I gave that advice myself two years back, and that has completely changed my life since then. You are accountable for your actions. Whatever you do or you don't do, you need to own that stuff. You can never go, especially as a founder, as a CEO, and blame anyone else for your success or failure. The only person who's responsible is you. So anytime you come back and say that I didn't do this because my board didn't let me do this, or my engineer didn't execute on this, or my partner didn't execute on this, the only one person who is to be blamed is you, yourself. Is a reason why you are a CEO. And once you're a CEO, you are accountable. Own it, make it happen in whatever it takes to make it happen.
0: And in making things happen, Ashur, what would you say has been one book through this journey of building and scaling companies that had a big impact on you that you wish you would have read sooner?
1: Uh, I don't think there's any single book. Uh, It's mainly collecting the wisdom from wherever it comes whether it is reading, these days I'm reading Earth Shastra by Chanakya from India, a phenomenal book around strategy, to art of war, to misbehaving, another one that I'm reading right now, to build to last, good to create, and so on. I'll tell you one book which you will find very funny, which probably no one ever has talked about on this platform. I was reading, I have two young kids, when my first kid was two, three years old, I was getting frustrated that I will tell him and he won't listen to me. So there's a book on parenting, which is how to talk so kids will listen. I read that book on a, ride to, on a plane ride. And that is a phenomenal book to be a good manager. That's At heart, amazing. all of us are kids. It's really taking that mapping to real life can be a phenomenal transformational for you. That's uh, definitely a book that I'm putting
0: to my list as well. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I guess for the people that are listening and watching, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Email me. My email address is ashutosh at eightfold.ai. I'm always here. Would love feedback, guidance, and anything I can help entrepreneurs as they want to pursue their dreams. I'm here to help.
0: Amazing. Well, Ashutosh, thank you so much for being on the Maker Show today.